Has the sexual revolution that began in the early 1960s had unintended, possibly damaging consequences? It certainly gave women sexual freedom, but did it also liberate men from the consequences of their behaviour? Did it turn sex into just another commodity? Did it turbocharge prostitution and the porn industry? Did a lot of changes we thought were liberal, liberating, even progressive, turn out to have a dark side? These are serious questions debated hotly among feminists for the past 30 years. And over the past decade, the left-leaning British writer Louise Perry has rethought her own beliefs. Louise is a columnist with The New Statesman. Her new book is The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, and we do discuss adult concepts. I did a graduate degree in women's studies, and at the same time I was doing that, I was training to be a helpline volunteer at a rape crisis centre, and I subsequently went on to work there full-time after I graduated. And I found that the disjunct between the academic feminism that I was being taught and what I was seeing and learning on the ground in frontline services gave me whiplash. The, the difference was so stark. There was just so little I felt in academic feminism about violence, about biology, about motherhood, about any of the things that actually seem to be pertinent to women's lives. I guess it was probably about then that I started thinking, hang on, <laughs> there's a gap here. You know, that There's a way in which academic feminism is failing to think about how women are actually living their lives right now. Mm. And all of that, I suppose, this, this book in a way has been 10 years in the writing. This book and this warning is not born out of any religious motivation. It's actually a book about ethics, about sexual ethics, isn't it? Yeah, so I'm not starting from a religious perspective, although, you know, there are religious readers who have read and enjoyed the book. But I'm starting from secular principles and it's addressed primarily to a secular audience and also I thought it was really important and I do so throughout the book to feed off of peer-reviewed research and to use data as much as I possibly can and to sort of root this very much in a kind of rational project in making the case against the sexual revolution and trying to make it clear that actually based on I think ethical principles that pretty much all of us share the results are not good, you know, and I think that there are, and there's a remarkable degree of inconsistency, I think, in a lot of the arguments made in favour of the principles of the sexual revolution. It will just outline, for example, the principles of the sexual revolution. It's kind of two things, isn't it? It's the material change brought by the pill primarily, but also by all sorts of other things, changes to the economy and to media and all of this kind of stuff that feeds into the outcomes of the sexual revolution. There's also the ideological component of it. And one factor in that ideological change is what I call in the book sexual disenchantment, which I'm borrowing from Max Weber's idea of disenchantment. And what I think sexual disenchantment is, it has been this move away, and it, it is, I think, primarily a reaction against Christianity. It's a move away from the idea of sex having any kind of special status, let alone a sacred status, right? So the sexual disenchantment principle says that actually sex needn't have any kind of distinction from any other kind of social interaction, like shaking someone's hand or making coffee or going surfing or anything you want to imagine. Sex can have meaning if people decide to invest meaning in it on a personal level. It doesn't have to, you know, you can sell it 
you can buy it you can come up with any kind of wild and wonderful sexual arrangement that you want to because actually this is the old idea that there was something unique about sex has been consigned to the past that's what sexual disenchantment says and that's a really really important idea is kind of the sexual revolution i think it's an idea that actually almost no one lives out in their real lives people will wax lyrical about sexual disenchantment on a rhetorical level but actually people care very much when their partner for instance has a sexual relationship with someone else people don't care at all if their partner shakes someone else's hand or has coffee with someone else but there's like a visceral recognition that actually sex is different and i think that the problem with making this rhetorical case for sexual disenchantment while actually not believing it because i don't think anyone really does is that there are all sorts of downstream effects of it which are really harmful to society in general and to women in particular we're going to discuss those louise but but who has tried to reclassify sex as something not intimate as just another transaction well, one of the groups of people who have tried to do this, and I think it was an unwise decision, is a group that I call in the book liberal feminists. So there are lots of different terms that you could use. I mean, this is the kind of feminism which is dominant now in the 21st century and has been for some time. It's a feminism that puts a lot of emphasis on freedom as the primary goal of feminism, the idea that the goal is to make women as free as they possibly can be and, and have as many choices available to them as possible, which sounds fine <laughs> and to a certain extent is a good thing to strive for. But I think the problem with liberal feminism is that it doesn't balance freedom against the other virtues and makes the mistake, for instance, of sexual disenchantment of assuming that if only you can let go of the old supposedly oppressive ideas around, for instance, sex having a special status, then everything will come good. You can see the argument, for instance, for saying that given that women have historically been held to a very brutal double sexual double standard, whereby they are judged in a way that men are not for being promiscuous or for or not protecting their chastity or whatever kind of old-fashioned term you want to use, the goal there should be sexual disenchantment, should be to sort of let go of the idea that sex should have any particular relevance to, to one's life, any particular special meaning. And I can completely sympathise with that urge. I think, though, that the problem is that trying to throw all of the old norms out of the window and really strip back sexual ethics to the absolute bare bones. I mean, the, the place that we're in now, words like chivalry, even words like respect and dignity are kind of unfashionable mm. among liberal feminists, right? The only term that you can really use, the only structure that's really left available is the consent structure, which I think doesn't do nearly a good enough job of actually protecting vulnerable people from harm. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about this idea that consent is all that's required in a moment, but you use this fascinating phrase, sexual Thatcherites. <laughs> but but, <laughs> but it does, it, does it, it is cheeky, but it is provocative in the sense that you raise this idea of sex as another commodity, and that's been very corrosive. What is sexual mm -hmm. Thatcherism? <laughs> so the argument I make is that kind of deregulating the sexual marketplace, right? So breaking free of any possible restrictions 
it should be seen as being analogous to deregulating the economic marketplace. And we should therefore apply exactly the same critiques to both processes because anyone with any kind of critique of capitalism, anyone on the left, should be able to recognize that deregulating the economic market does not necessarily serve the interests of the most vulnerable people within that market who are workers and poorer people, right? It's evident to anyone who is critical of Margaret Thatcher's policies, deregulation very often empowers the bosses because the nature of the market is that it's not an even playing field in terms of power. The quote that I use in the book is, freedom for the pike is death for the minnows. It's a quote originally applied to to economics and recognising the fact that giving more freedom to exploitative bosses is not good news for the people in their employ. And I apply the same reasoning to the sexual marketplace and say, look, you know, maybe this would make sense, the idea of just adding more freedom if it were an even playing field, but it isn't. There are certain ways in which women are at a biological disadvantage to men in terms of the fact that we are the ones who get pregnant, we are the ones who are smaller and weaker and therefore more vulnerable to violence. And all of that inequality means that actually when you inject more freedom, that's not necessarily to women's benefit. I'd say it's actually to their cost. This is the Religion and Ethics Report with Andrew West back with you. And we are speaking with the British writer Louise Perry The book that we're discussing is Louise's new book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. Louise, didn't the Me Too movement of 2017 correct all of this sexual excess? I thought it was meant to focus laser-like on the sexual excesses of men. What happened there? Well, that was definitely its motivation, like, it's making me stronger and not feel so alone and, like, like stupid. Like, well, how did I go through all these things and not ever talk about it? Because I'm so embarrassed. And, like, why did that happen to me? And maybe I shouldn't be doing this because why are these things happening to me all the time and stuff like that? Sorry. I don't I haven't really talked about this. While the rich and famous have spoken out... I want to tell you how brave you were just now. Yeah. Thank you. The stories of those trying to make it in Hollywood remain largely untold. The lead actor was also the producer, and we had a love scene, but he took off his boxers underneath the covers, and he was naked under there. And he, but he was the producer, and he was also a man in power. The Me Too movement has given these young women the courage to speak up and to believe they'll be heard. There are times in my life where I feel like I... I don't have any options because I'm afraid to um, out myself as someone who's not willing to like go there or that, that you know, certain boundaries are not acceptable when they should be. You know, we just practice unhealthy boundaries all the time and I think that it's starting to change as people stand up and people are saying we're not we're not going for this anymore. So there was maybe two or three very courageous people that came out, right, recently. And then all of a sudden, gives, well, they can do it, I can do it. If I can do it, they can do it. I think that what we saw with Me Too was a, a long overdue cry of misery and rage from a lot of women who were suffering. It's worth bearing in mind that with Me Too, some of what was described was clear criminality. 
A lot of it wasn't, though. A lot of what was described in Me Too was the sort of sexual encounters that did jump the bar in terms of legality. The men in these cases had met the consent threshold in a legal sense, but they hadn't behaved well. They hadn't Mm. behaved like gentlemen. They hadn't behaved respectfully. And the consent framework can't really deal with that. There's a very large area between a sexual encounter being legally permissible and it being good for everyone involved. And most of what was being discussed in Me Too was somewhere within that area. And it is an area that is very difficult to talk about within the parameters of liberal feminism. You give this example in the book, it's fascinating, of a 1950s home economics textbook. And it suggests that uh, the good wife will have uh, supper ready on the table for her husband when he gets home and a nice ribbon in her hair. Now, this is obviously very antiquated, but what did you discover reading contemporary women's magazines, the high-end glossies? (laughs) I discovered exactly the same sentiment, just expressed differently. I think that what we've seen has been a change in what ideal feminine behavior looks like between now and the 1950s and the having dinner ready when your husband gets home ideal is now, as you say, considered very antiquated. But actually you see just a sort of prescriptive uh, mode of advice in modern women's magazines. It's just that instead of domesticity being the ideal, the ideal is now all to do with sexuality and women being constantly up for it, really adventurous, you know, all these things that you can do to please your man in the bedroom, et cetera, et cetera, including the sort of things that would have been considered really beyond the pale by most women a couple of decades ago, but have been very normalized by porn. What I've heard from talking to young women who are growing up in this kind of culture is that this promise of having more choice about your sexual life really has not been delivered at all because While there used to be an ideal of women being chased before marriage and tied to the kitchen sink and all this stuff, there's just a new ideal now. There's a new set of pressures. Women are now, young women are now afraid of being considered frigid or prudish or not up for all of this stuff, which is now considered to be normal. And I think that it's naive to look at our current sexual culture and say, oh, well, they have a choice. I say, well, I mean, yes, we do all have a choice, obviously, when it comes down to it. But the path of least resistance is the path that most people are going to take in terms of the cultural and the social pressures on them. And particularly, I think that's true for teenagers and young people who we know are much, much more susceptible to social anxiety, to worrying about being normal and doing the normal thing. And I think that when what's being presented to young women and also to young men as the norm, as the high status ideal, is to live out this very kind of loveless, pornified sexual model, sexual script, I think that to just dismiss this as a matter of choice is to really underestimate the extent to which we're all networked. That is the nature of all human life, but is particularly, I think, the nature of sexual life in that it is a relational act. It's something you do with other people. You are affected by other people's choices and other people's ideals. This is a very unfashionable thing that you've done, but... I think it's very important. You've rehabilitated the image of a woman who was very controversial in her day. She was derided and subject to her own form of sexual objectification by British elites. I'm talking here of Mary Whitehouse. Now, just remind us of who Mary Whitehouse was. 
So Mary Whitehouse was a campaigner who was active in the UK uh, for a long time, I think from the 60s through to the 1990s, although she's most often associated with the 60s and 70s. And she was a conservative Christian campaigner, a housewife, a former teacher. She was from the Midlands. She had a Midlands accent, which was um, struck up a contrast with the men who she locked horns with, who all had posh accents and were from London. Ultimately, she failed in her campaign. Her, she was resisting the increasing permissiveness of British society. She was particularly concerned with TV and radio and so on and campaigned against things like increasingly explicit sex scenes on television and increasing violence on television and things like that. I mean, sometimes suggested, you know, that we're anti-sex and so forth, uh, anti-violence. Of course we're anti-violence, but we're very concerned how these issues are presented and, and very often, you know, it just boils down to perhaps even seconds of camera work. Have you had much success in trying to rid British television of some of these elements? Oh, I, I think now that, you know, when we started ten years ago, we were terrible Philistines for saying that if you constantly portray certain types of behaviour, like violent behaviour on television, you will help to normalise it in society. But now, you know, this is becoming accepted right across the board. And I find it extraordinarily difficult to understand why it isn't accepted, because broadcasting is a very powerful media. And of course, if you present constantly certain types of behaviour and ideas, they're going to become accepted. But she also had an amazing impact in her day. And the argument that I make in the book is that Mary Whitehouse has generally been considered a bit of a punchline. She was wrong about a lot, but she was also prescient about a lot. Well, yeah, she was very prophetic in a way that no one, no sensible person would disagree today. How was that? I'd say the most important point on which she was vindicated is that she was one of a very small number of people in the 1970s who were speaking publicly about the issue of child sexual abuse. And she was in conflict with the BBC in particular at a time when we now know the BBC was enabling the likes of Jimmy Savile, who was abusing children on BBC premises, potentially a thousand children um, over the course of a really long period of time and Mary Whitehouse was one of these very a rare person who was saying the unfashionable thing at the time which was that child sexual abuse was far more widespread than anyone wanted to imagine. This often gets forgotten but that one of the things that did come out of the sexual revolution and the idea of stripping away all sexual norms was that there was at times a remarkably elite level argument made in favour of the legalisation of sex between children and adults. Mm. And there were European countries like Sweden, for instance, who legalised child porn at the same time that they legalised all other kinds of porn, which meant that there was this bizarre situation up until recently where the Swedish public library still had possession of, of child porn in its collections, but it was illegal for people to take this content out of mm. the library. This was a shockingly normalised for a period and I argue completely in keeping actually with the principles of the sexual revolution you know the argument that was made by people like Foucault and other extremely influential intellectuals of the period was not that it was okay to violently coerce children into sex you know they were in keeping with the consent model which is still with us their argument was that actually there were certain situations in which children could consent to sex with adults 
This is the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West with you. We're speaking this week with Louise Perry, the British writer. She's a columnist with The New Statesman and her new book is The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. The other thing that um, struck me about the Me Too era was that I expected there would have been a hue and cry against two often related industries, uh, prostitution and pornography. I didn't hear that. Did I miss something there, Louise? Liberal feminism is very squeamish about talking about pornography. I think that there is a general feeling and a growing feeling that there is something wrong with the porn industry, that it is problematic, to use the fashionable term. But the answer to this generally is that there should be more feminist pornography made as an alternative to the very obviously non-feminist mainstream content. And two, that we should be educating people, particularly educating young people, about the fact that porn is harmful and unrealistic and so on. So the problem I have with the feminist porn argument is just that it is so obvious to me that supposedly feminist content is being outcompeted. Sarah Dighton, who's a friend of mine, a British feminist writer, the comparison she makes to this is that... um, making feminist porn is like putting a chicken in your backyard and saying that you fixed factory farming. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's a, such a trivial move to make, you know, in the face of, I think that what has to be understood with the porn industry, the modern porn industry as it is, is that the shift to online has changed it completely. It is entirely dissimilar from the magazines of the 1960s, you know, as harmful as they were in their way, the new product is completely different. And I think that the main way in which the new product is so pernicious is that it is perfectly designed to be really, really compulsive as a product, right, to to hook young brains in particular. Well, tell us about this uh, entity, Pornhub. So Pornhub is the most um, popular porn platform in the world, and it's owned by a company called MindGeek who own a whole bunch of porn platforms, a hugely profitable company based in Canada. You know, MindGeek really needs to be understood as influential as Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram combined in terms of the number of eyeballs fixed on MindGeek-owned platforms at any one time. And MindGeek has been embroiled in all sorts of legal drama related to its harmful practices. I mean, at the moment, there's a court case underway in the States involving a young woman whose images were put on Pornhub without her consent when she was, I think, 14, and advertised as such. You know, the video was labelled as 14-year-old girl. She tried desperately hard to get them taken down. Pornhub were really obstructive. They continued to profit from views of her video, and she ended up living in her car addicted to heroin, you know, ruined her life, Mm -hmm. this incident. And these platforms are making money from this. They are beaming some of the most appalling content into the iPads and smartphones and laptops of people all over the world, and particularly young people. And I think that we should be particularly worried about the effect this has on young minds, because what's happening at the moment is we've got basically a whole generation being used as guinea pigs. What happens if 
instead of people having their first sexual experiences in real life, we instead have young men in particular seeing hundreds or even thousands of images of adults having sex, often really brutal sex, before they've had any kind of real sexual relationships themselves. I think that this is a such a shocking and dangerous experiment to be running on the world youth. And yet, as we were saying at the top, it seems as if liberal feminists just don't want to talk about it. Well, here's a very troubling statistic. Pornhub was unmasked by the former New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof. As a consequence, it was forced to cut its online video content from 13 million down to 4 million, which raises questions about the 9 million videos that it had to cut. Yeah, I mean, this is on an almost unimaginable scale. And Pornhub, you know, have vaguely defended themselves by saying they have content moderators and so on. But it's evident that their efforts at content moderation of feeble, you know, I think increasingly apparent that they are deliberately feeble because Pornhub do not profit from producing wholesome, responsible content, right? They profit from producing content that is actually, I think, deliberately designed often to encourage users to watch ever more shocking material because the regular users become inured to the vanilla stuff. And I think this is a big part of why BDSM, bondage domination, sadomasochism content has become so mainstream on many of these platforms. It's because it offers a more shocking stimulus than does the normal stuff, which regular porn users will no longer get as aroused by, which is why I think that, you know, online porn needs to be understood as a distinct entity with distinctly dangerous risks associated with it, much more than the magazines of of our parents' and grandparents' generations. Just finally, Louise, uh, there is this term, it's become quite devalued and a bit meaningless, uh, but that is being an ally, allyship. But let's just go with it. How can men be better, quote-unquote, allies against these kinds of exploitative sexual relationships? I don't use porn as top of my list. (laughs) <laughs> it's not it's not possible to use porn in a feminist way it's something i i assert quite strongly and in the face of a lot of criticism sometimes but i think it really is one of those things like using uh clothes made by sweatshop laborers or whatever other kind of unethical product you want to imagine it really is much better to boycott it i think in general there was a lot to be said for chivalry there are downsides to chivalry sometimes in that sometimes it can be expressed in a way that that seems annoying or patronizing you know if we accept the fact that there's an important power differential between men and women and there are certain ways in which men are have a physical advantage over women i think that throwing out an idea or a cultural ideal which says that the more powerful person has a special responsibility to be courteous and accommodating and to restrain himself, which is, I think, basically at the core of what chivalry means. Throwing that ideal out of the window was terribly unwise. Very good to speak with you. Louise Perry, British writer. She's a columnist with The New Statesman. You've heard Louise on the program several times before. We've been discussing her new book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. Louise, thank you very much for coming back to the Religion and Ethics Report. Thank you so much, Andrew. 
And you can find that discussion when you go to the ABC Listen app and look for the program using the search function. Thanks to Hong Jang, Craig Tillmouth and Hamish Camilleri. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report as we start our 2023 season. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.